Hi there everyone, hope you are uh, doing well. For those who don't know me, my name's Ray Bell. I live in the Adelaide Hills with my wife Bron and our second daughter Stephanie uh, and I serve as pastor at Coromandel Baptist Church. James invited me some time ago to preach uh, with you today, uh, well before we knew anything of COVID-19 um, and how we would be gathering or not uh, in these days. I do wish I could be with you in person. Uh, maybe that will happen sometime in the future. I believe uh, as a church you are hoping to gather together again in a week or two and trust that goes really well. Uh, sorry I won't be able to join you uh, for your Zoom time afterwards either. Uh, our daughter has gone into surgery this Friday and just need to be available over the weekend for her uh, and the family. Uh, but for now I trust you're knowing the Father's care and keeping in these days. And as we share in the Word together today, that the same Spirit who unites us together in Christ, even as we're apart physically uh, in different locations, I pray that the same Spirit might speak to all of us. And when I say that, I pray he might speak life into all of us, into our hearts and minds through the Word. About a month ago, um, those who follow the church calendar uh, celebrated Ascension Day. And uh, we preached and considered the matter of Christ's Ascension at Coro around that time. And the Lord showed me just as God's Old Testament people were a people of hope and patient endurance as they awaited uh, the, the promised Messiah, Having now arrived with Christ's ascension as he leaves this earth uh, to be seated at the Father's right hand, that also commenced a time of waiting for God's people, for everyone who follows Jesus. So the title for today's message is, What are you waiting for? Maybe for a few weeks you've been waiting for the football to start again. Many of us are waiting for restrictions to be lifted altogether, for things with the virus to be over and done with. Sadly, we might be waiting some time for that. Uh, but let me read the passage of Scripture that provided the basis for that title. Then I'll pray before we consider these things together. Passages from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great way to start a letter, isn't it? Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great mercy and for the living hope that you've caused us to be born again into through the resurrection of your Son. We pray today that in your great mercy you might speak to us this day, renew in us if need be, not just a sense of, uh, but a very real joy and vigour, an eager expectation in this living hope that we have in Christ. And Father, where it's needed by your Spirit, we pray that you might help us to recalibrate what it is we are waiting for, to reset who or what it is we might have set our hopes on. Father, in your mercy we ask, hear our prayer. Amen. One of the great joys and privileges of being a pastor is when a young couple calls you up and asks you to conduct their wedding. And with that comes the opportunity to share with them in some marriage preparation in the months leading up to their big day. I really enjoy those opportunities uh, with the opportunity to share into their lives, encourage them in life and faith and love. Um, and to watch how they interact together uh, as a young couple in their preparations. There's a sense of eager anticipation, there's a lot of fun, and there's some work to do, um, as anyone who's planned a wedding will know. Uh, There's a lot to get ready, isn't there? From official paperwork to the printing of orders of uh, service, from dress fittings to the booking of cars and suits and the honeymoon. Um, And you can learn a lot just by watching and listening and observing the young couple in action together as they work through these things. And one of the things I always try to remind a young couple is as they're preparing for their wedding day that God himself is preparing them, not just for a day, they want that to be a good event, that's all good and fine, but God's preparing them for a marriage, for their lifetime ahead together. In those weeks and months leading up to their big day, during all those preparations with all that needs to be done, It would be really sad, wouldn't it, if the couple preparing got tired of waiting. If what started out with all this excitement and eager anticipation actually just became frustrated impatience. If what began as a fun and enjoyable time together organising everything just became a drudgery, a dull chore that they wanted to be over and done with. Or worse still, if they tried to bring forward all too soon the goal and the consummation that they've been waiting and preparing for. Or maybe because of the length of time they've set themselves between their engagement and their wedding, maybe it just seems too long and they've got complacent. They forget about preparing things, they've got sick and tired of that, they're getting bored, no longer bothering to make any bookings or preparations. They get to all of that later, so they think. But when the day comes, it's all a shambles. What if one of the couple, sick and tired of waiting altogether, has just had enough, looks for another love, forgets the bride-to-be, calls the whole thing off? Sadly, that can happen. The whole scenario, though, can be much the same for us with Christ. What are you like at waiting? From the moment Jesus left this earth to be seated at the Father's right hand, a time of waiting began for his disciples and for all who follow him in faith. 
Luke is the only gospel writer who gives us a clear report of Christ's ascension when he left this earth. It's actually the hinge uh, between uh, Luke's two letters, um, his gospel and the book of Acts. Uh, Luke tells us at the end of his gospel, with just a few verses to go, after telling his disciples to stay and to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the Spirit, he says, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And that's it. That's the account of this amazing event of the ascension of Christ being lifted up into heaven. And that's the end of Luke's Gospel. But then at the beginning of his second letter to Theophilus in the book of Acts, he picks up where he left off, reporting the same event again, Christ's ascension, and then moves quickly to the great fulfilment of that promise. The pouring of the outpouring of the Spirit. Christ's ascension into heaven is the hinge that joins the two books of Luke in the New Testament. And his ascension, it's very clear, begins a time of waiting for his disciples. Wait there in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And it's a time of waiting for all of us, for his return, for his appearing. In that account in Acts, immediately after Jesus leaves them, taken out of their sight by a cloud, two angels appear, two men standing by them in white robes and saying to them, Men of Galilee! Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's as if they're saying to them, Why are you still here gazing up into the clouds? What are you waiting for? Didn't he tell you to go and wait in Jerusalem, not here? From the moment Jesus left this earth, the way he did, his followers have been waiting for something. First of all, for the gift of the Spirit, and secondly, for his return. And so we live today in the same way. We have the gift of the promised spirit and we now live in a hope and the expectation of Christ's return, his appearing. Or at least we should live in that hope and expectation. But as we wait, just as the disciples were, we're to be about something in life. Some of us have done a lot of waiting these past months, waiting for the virus to finish, waiting for restrictions to be lifted, to get out of isolation, for church to start again. But have we been purposeful? Have we been about something in our waiting? I don't think God's been sitting back the last few months just waiting for it all to pass over. I think he's been active. He's had a purpose in all of this. And he calls us to wait in the same way. Not passively, but actively. The waiting between his appearings, between Christ coming to earth and his appearing again, isn't meant to be like what we might do at a doctor's surgery, reading an old issue of Time magazine or Women's Weekly or checking our social media feed to pass the time. No, as the disciples waited, they were to go, to go in the power of the Spirit and to bear witness to Christ, proclaiming the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. And as we wait... Peter tells his readers and us that as we wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled in the coming day of the Lord, we too are to be about something. We too, like the disciples, have been called out of darkness into his marvellous light so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. 
we're to be about something as we wait. What sort of people ought we to be? Peter asks or suggests while we wait. In 2 Peter 3, he tells us we are to be a people who live in holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You see, this waiting in the New Testament, it's not passive. It's not inactive. It's not a bored kind of waiting, twiddling our thumbs. Far from it. It's waiting in a living hope. As I read from 1 Peter, the end of that passage we read, verse 13, tells us to prepare our minds for action. I'll say more about that in a moment. But before we look at what it is that we are to be about while we wait, it's worth noting that Jesus himself, now seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, he's not sitting back on a deck chair in heaven reading a book. He is waiting in one sense. He's told his disciples he can't wait to eat that feast with them again in the kingdom. He's waiting for that. But he's seated now on a throne at the Father's right hand and being on a throne means he's living and active in power and authority. He's been lifted up and ascended on high. And that doesn't just mean he's up there in the clouds in heaven. It's not so much to do with his geographic location. You won't find Jesus or the heavenly places or the throne of God uh, on Google Maps. No, instead he's veiled from our sight but being lifted up on high at the Father's right hand means he's been positioned in a place of authority, a place of power actively reigning over all things, even over the coronavirus, even over these days. He is ruling, he is making decisions, he is sending out hosts of angels, armies of them as the Lord of hosts and he's also interceding for the saints. And he's preparing a place for us in his father's house. And one aspect of his exalted work we don't often consider is he is defeating and destroying his enemies. Even as the first coronavirus case emerged in China, Jesus was reigning actively. As it spread across the nations, he was reigning. He's interceding. He is at work through this whole crisis. He is Lord. And he is comforting his people, he's convicting the world, and he is dealing with his enemies. He's living and active in the world from his throne in heaven. And to be honest, that's what gives us hope and endurance in these days, in these times. We may not see or understand all that he is doing or why he's bringing about and allowing so much suffering, but he is sovereign over it all. And when you think about it, if he's not, the only other option really is that it's all a matter of fate, of chance, of luck or not. And that doesn't give anyone any hope, does it? Instead, we can know this. We can know that Jesus has not retired in his resurrected and ascended state. No, far from it. He's living and active in the church and in the world and in the heavenly places. And together with his Father, we can know that all his works are perfect and all his ways are just. Luke makes that abundantly clear the way he writes his letters. Using that hinge of his ascension between his two letters, he writes this in his introduction to the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's the content of the Gospel according to Luke. 
all that Jesus began to do and teach. But notice Luke didn't write that he dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. He didn't write that in the past tense as though Jesus had now finished doing and teaching all that he had done. No, he wrote, in my first letter I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication being now, here in Luke's second letter, in the Acts of the Apostles, he's dealing with all that Jesus continues to do and to teach. So the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is really the act of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostles, in the church, in the world. He hasn't stopped doing anything. Yes, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished on the cross. His work is a living a righteous life here on earth to the point of death and of bearing the sins of the world and atoning for our sin and guilt. All of that work is finished, yes. But he now goes on working with the Father and the Spirit from his place of exaltation at the Father's right hand. So if you feel so inclined, you can actually change the title of the book of Acts in your Bibles from the Acts of the Apostles to the ongoing Acts of Jesus by the Spirit through the Apostles. Sometimes the Spirit acts, Jesus acts directly without even the means of the Spirit or the Apostles appearing directly from heaven to people like Saul on the Damascus Road or Peter in his vision on the roof and Cornelius. And that, to be honest, is one of the great reasons of Christ's ascension in the first place. We might think how good it would be if Jesus actually came and showed himself to us in the flesh Maybe God's missed a great marketing and promotions opportunity. Imagine if we could fill Adelaide Oval with 50,000 people every week to come and see the resurrected Jesus. But you see, when Jesus left his disciples, he told them it's actually to their advantage that he goes to the Father's right hand. You see, if he didn't go away, if he didn't leave them here on earth, then the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would not come to them. But if he does, as he goes to the Father, he will send the Spirit. You see, remember, Jesus has been raised, hasn't he, bodily, with a resurrection body? Yes, with a glorified resurrection body, but it's still a physical body, which means he can only be in one place at any one time. At least I think it still means that. He did manage to get into locked rooms and things like that. But he now sits at the Father's right hand, hidden and veiled from our sight except as he chooses to reveal himself in various ways. But from there, he and the Father have sent the Spirit, who Luke tells us, and Paul also uh, tells us, he's the Spirit actually of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. And through the Spirit, he can now be everywhere. He's not just blowing in the breeze kind of everywhere, but he's promised to dwell in everyone who believes. He lives in our hearts in your heart and mine. When we gather in his name, only two or three believers, there he is among us. He's present among us. And so instead of 50,000 people needing to get a ticket to come to Adelaide Oval to see Jesus in one place, now everyone who believes carries the living presence of Christ everywhere they go, all over the world, in their homes, in their workplaces, in the churches, to the nations. Jesus wasn't homesick. He didn't get cabin fever here on earth. He didn't go to heaven so he could get away from us only to be with his father. 
No, it's to our advantage that he has ascended to the right hand of God so that he can be with us everywhere, all the time. He's not far from you. He's in you. He's near you. He's, we're told he fills us with all the fullness of God. The presence and the power of the Spirit in us he is sent and poured out upon all who believe. And it's by the power of the Spirit, that same immeasurable greatness of his power, Paul tells us in Ephesians, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and ascended him to heaven, that same power is at work towards you, towards all those who believe. And so we now wait in this living hope, this new birth that we have in Christ. We wait for his appearing but we wait in and with the power and the presence of the Spirit working mightily in us and through us, personally and corporately as the church. And as we wait, Peter tells us that we are to prepare our minds for action and being sober-minded, we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've already received grace upon grace, abundant, lavish grace in Christ. But there's more to come. The grace that will be revealed to us when he is revealed. Future grace at the revelation of Christ. But even now as we wait for this future grace, for Christ to appear, we're to set our hope fully on it. Now as I've read that a number of times, I've pondered it and prayed through it, I ask myself, is that what I'm waiting for? Is that what I have set my hopes on? And I ask you the same question this morning. Is that what you are waiting for? For the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is that what your hopes are set on? Fully. I know I have the tendency, I tend to try to juggle a lot of things at once and I put, uh, the majority of the time I'll put... uh, my hope in the next thing. I, I, even while I'm juggling lots of things, I'll try to do one thing at a time and have to get one thing done and then I can really think about the next one even though I know they're all there in the line. But Peter tells us here in this first letter to set our hope, not on the first thing, not on the next thing, but on the last thing, which actually helps us endure all the other things between then and now. Setting our hope fully on the grace to come at the revelation of Christ helps us live our lives of faith and hope and love today. How are you going these days? How are you spending your time waiting? What are our hopes set on? And by these days, I do mean these days between Christ's appearings, but I also mean these times of restrictions and isolation concern about the coronavirus and the future. Some of us I know have had enough. There are days where you just want to get out. Enough zooming, enough screen time. We're sick and tired of waiting. Others are quite happy, quite comfortable living the quieter life and might find it quite difficult returning to something close to normal again. Some of us develop good habits whilst in uh, isolation with restrictions. Lots of people out walking. Lots of people sharing time with their kids and things. Others have developed not so good habits. 
and it'll be good if we could maybe work that out as we go back into life to actually say what are we going to keep and what are we going to get rid of how are we going to go ahead what have we learned but I do believe these times have definitely taught many of us how well or not we wait how well we wait patiently or not they haven't all been easy days have they I think they have helped us, maybe painfully so, but they've de- definitely helped us set our hopes, our priorities, uh, given us some perspective on life to work out what's important. I wonder even as a church, churches around the place, is the church global, are our hopes set on the promises of God? Have we set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed? And have we prepared our minds for action? Or are we more excited now that AFL started up again? Don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with enjoying the footy or God's good gifts, whatever it might be that we enjoy in life. But if that's the sum total of all that we're waiting for, if that's the primary object of our hope, well, first, it's pretty sad. And secondly, that kind of hope will disappoint us. It will put us to shame. It will let us down. I think we can say from both the scriptures and from life experience that the substance of our hope, uh, our conviction of what we hope for, determines how well or not we wait. One writer puts it this way, our eschatology determines our ethics. That is, what we believe about the return of Christ determines how we live now. If we have a lively expectation, such that Peter wants us to have here, then we would live a holy life, whatever the immediate consequences. For we'd be so expectant of the ultimate reward that comes when Christ appears that any temporal loss or suffering in this life would make no difference. That's what it is when Peter talks about suffering, and James as well. Paul says the sufferings of this day are not worth comparing to the glory. But if we don't have our hope set on that glory, then all we have our minds on is the suffering. Now, I don't think setting our hope fully on the grace of God to come means we can't have other hopes. Just as loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength means we've got no love for anyone else. It's not how it works, is it? But it does mean that our primary hope, the ultimate goal of our waiting and the motivation for all we do now as we wait is the grace of God that we will receive when Christ appears. It means the last thing in terms of time becomes the first thing in terms of our priority, in terms of our hope. Peter tells us we've been born into a living hope, not a living boredom, not a dead hope, but a sure and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't know about you, but some mornings I feel like I need an extra dose of resurrection power to get up in the morning. But isn't that wonderfully encouraging and energising to know that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand, that same power is at work towards you and me and the church today. How good would it be to wake up to that every morning? It's not some pep talk. I'm not trying to gear us up and get us all raring to go. I don't need to do that. Christ is risen and we've been born again to a living hope through his resurrection. 
we have that same immeasurably great power at work towards us that was at work in him. Maybe we should make our alarms, shout those things to us in the morning to help us get up. Probably change the way we wake up and get on with the days, wouldn't it? And with all of that in mind and all of that at our disposal, if we can put it that way, Peter urges us to prepare our minds for action. Literally, that verse says to to gird the loins of our minds for action. You remember the story of the prodigal son and how the father um, ran to meet his boy when he saw him? And to do that, he would have had to lift up his robe so he could run. It was quite a shameful thing for a man to do in those days. But that's what he did. He had to pick up his robe and he had to run. And that's what Peter is telling us to do here, not with the hem of our robes, but with our minds, to free them up to take away any hindrance and obstacle, free up our minds for action, to set our minds on the things above, not below, but where Christ is. Today we might say, roll up your sleeves and get ready for work. The work and action of the kingdom, waiting and living holy and godly lives. We're to set our minds free from the things of the world that hinder us. We're to be sober-minded, Not so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but nor are we to be so earthly minded that the things of heaven are far from our minds and lives. Not conforming, he says, to our former passions, but being sober minded and prepared for action. What kind of action? Well, I encourage you to read through Peter's letters. Hear what kind of action he's talking about. But ultimately he's speaking of the action that springs from faith and hope and love. You can trace that trilogy through Peter's letters just as you can through some of Paul's. It's the action of prayer, the action of proclaiming the gospel, the action of faithful life and obedience, of self-control and loving submission, even the action of enduring suffering in hope and of being good stewards of the grace of God, humble, watchful and hopeful. And we need all the grace of God to do that. Past, present and future grace. But as you read through Peter's letters and I would encourage you to do that in the next few days. They're not long. They're really practical and purposeful for us. That's what the Christian life of faith, this life of waiting with a living hope looks like. Practical, purposeful, kingdom living. And I think the action that we're to prepare our minds for is exactly what he's speaking of in his second letter when he tells us that we are to be both waiting for and hastening or speeding the coming day of the Lord. You might know the old saying, a watch kettle never boils. That's to say if you just stand there waiting and watching, not doing anything, it'll feel like it takes forever to get to that point. Whereas if we get busy and do something, the time goes much quicker. Well, what is it we're meant to get busy doing? Well, Peter would have been well aware of a Jewish tradition uh, based on Isaiah 60, 22, uh, that the coming of Messiah would actually be held back by the sins of the people. But that day would be speeded up, would be hastened through repentance. And so Peter, I think, is encouraging us in his letter and elsewhere. um, And the scriptures tell us that repentance comes how? Through God's loving kindness through prayer, through the preaching of the word. In Acts 3, Peter himself says that repentance and faith 
will bring times of refreshing from the Lord so that he may send the Christ. Repentance and faith. So be about all we can in the kingdom, preaching and praying for repentance. One commentator, Peter Davids, says this, If we really desire the coming of the kingdom, we had best get on with repentance, both ourselves, our own repentance, and proclaiming it to others, and then living holy lives, so that we can cooperate with God in preparing for the end. That's much of what it means to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Being diligent, as Peter puts it, and to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Simply living holy and godly lives in repentance and faith. Being prepared to give reason for the hope we have and sharing the gospel is what it means to wait for and hasten the coming day of the Lord. You don't have to be a preacher or a pastor to do that. That's an encouragement and a command and obligation for us all. Peter stirs us up by way of reminder to encourage us, to make us each consider how we might be stirred up in our actions of faith and hope and love. How have you been spending your time? We've had one of our folk at Coro, um, he's a musician and doing other things, but he's spent some time in isolation working on his music, doing some new hymns in a, in a new way. You might like to look them up. H.L. Jones, Folked Up Hymns. Another family's been doing artwork and writing cards to people and sharing with folk along the way, encouraging them as they've had to stay at home. You would have stories yourselves, I'm sure, of people who have been praying and sharing with others as they're able. Whatever it is, as we wait, whatever it is we're waiting for, let's set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Christ and to be about that in life. And as we do, we might just find that our spiritual pulse, if I can put it that way, lifts as we find ourselves living in this living hope that we've been born again into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the mercy and the grace that we have received and to know even as we've heard this morning that there's even more grace to come at the revelation of your Son. Father, help us to set our hope fully on that day, on your grace. Your word tells us that you are actually guarding us in these times through faith. We want to thank you for this. And we pray that in your mercy and grace, you might fill us with patience and hope, such that we ourselves are quickened into the life and action of your kingdom here on earth while we wait for his appearing. Amen. I started this message with the opening lines of Peter's first letter. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let me finish it with a prayer and benediction at the end of that letter. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore you, confirm, strengthen and establish you. How good is that? To him be the, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God be with you all. Amen.